And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Peter Lilbeck, president of Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Lilbeck, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Dan, I count it an honor to be with you and all those who are listening today at Redeemer. This is an important month for us, for the Christian Church, really, um, because the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation will be celebrated the last day of this month, and that's just a little bit away. So uh, we've been talking about, on a plain answer, um, Martin Luther a couple of times, and then also a Bible translation. Today we want to look at the life and teaching of John Calvin, uh, a profound influencer for the Reformation. And so I'm wondering if you can get us started a little bit and uh, talk about him. Well, the thing that makes John Calvin so strategic in the history of the Protestant movement is the unique giftedness that he had as a human being. Secondly, his place in history when he comes on the scene, and then the extraordinary passion he had for teaching the Bible. Now, if you say a quick word about each of those, first of all, uh, he had the advantage of coming on the scene of the Reformation as a second-generation reformer. Martin Luther was that brilliant, courageous, powerful figure that changes the world. We could think of him as the spark that blew the dynamite keg of the medieval church to the highest heavens and opened up the truth of the scriptures. But after that happened, with all the uh, chaos, the change, the struggle, somebody had to put those pieces into order. And uh, while it was attempted by Luther's right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, it really fell to John Calvin to put those pieces together in an abiding system that still is relevant today and will be, in my humble belief, as long as the church is on earth. That's because of the second reason. John Calvin was a scholar of the highest order. He was trained in law. He had a theological upbringing, but he loved the humanist return back to the original sources. Sometimes we call it the ad fontes, back to the fountain spirit, which meant that he wanted to be a careful student of the original languages of the Greek and Hebrew, the Bible, and bring it into the language of the people. So when he came on the scene, his gifts of scholarship, his organizational skills, and then thirdly, there's probably, as far as I can see, no one who desired to be faithful to the Scripture as fully as Calvin. Uh, I was just reading a quote from Theodore Beza, the man who was his right-hand man and one of his biographers, who said, every word in the Bible to Calvin weighed a pound. Every word was important, and he wrestled with its meaning, trying to put it in its context and meaning. And so he preached regularly, day by day, through the week, and then morning and evening on Sundays. He wrote his Institutes of the Christian Religion as kind of a textbook to guide us through the complicated questions of Scripture, creating, if you will, the beginnings of a biblical systematic theology. So if Luther is the great discoverer and uh, developer of the foundational Protestant movement, it's Calvin who gives it its vitality and shape that enables it to grow worldwide. As you were describing this, you mentioned a word that some people may misunderstand, and that is the word humanist. What is meant by that in the context of the times? Well, we can think of the word humanist as coming from the word human, and 
So it will have different nuances. If we use it in its most recent context, a humanist might be considered a, a polite name for an atheist, someone who only believes in human beings' existence and nothing beyond, no supernatural. That's not what we're talking about. We might think of a humanitarian, someone who is caring for the needs of people in hurricanes and disasters and fires. That's important, but that's not what we mean. In this case, we're actually using the word in the sense of the humanities, that body of literature that describes human knowledge, the original writings of cultures from Greek and Hebrew, uh, from the Roman Empire, uh, as it developed the foundational thought of the Western civilization. So in Calvin's day, in the Reformation day of Luther, a humanist was someone who wanted to go back to the original languages of the Bible and the original documents of Western civilization, not to be comfortable with their translation or later thinking, but back to original sources. If I could say it this way, anybody who discusses history or any field of knowledge and says, let's go back to the original basis, they are reflecting this spirit of the humanist. What does the original text, the original thinker mean? So that's the idea in this word of humanist. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, The time frame of Calvin, when was he born and when does he really come on the scene here as the second generation reformer, as you put it? So if you think of Luther, his birth uh, was 1483. Uh, He comes on the scene of the Reformation in 1517. So when Calvin is born and Luther is already beginning the Reformation, uh, if you will, Calvin is only like a six- or seven-year-old child (laughs) when Luther is nailing the 95 Theses to the church door. So, whereas Luther's life spans from the 1400s into the 1500s, Calvin lives entirely in the 1500s. See, he is someone who is only given basically from a little bit into the early 1500s into the 1560s. So he has a life of about 59 years or so, and he's right there at the beginning of, if you will, the uh, what we'd call the 16th century. So maybe 30 years, a generation or so after Luther. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about his teaching. Um, if you were to characterize Calvin and what was really important in his mind, uh, what are some things that come out? Well, uh, historians and theologians have tried to debate what is the center of Calvin's theology, and some people would say, well, he's, because he's Reformed, it has to be predestination. Others would say, no, because uh, he's uh, a Calvinist, it has to be providence, the sovereignty of God. Well, these, of course, are great truths of Calvin, but if you look at his real systematic theological structure, which are the Institutes of the Christian Religion, his classic book, still in print after all these years, translated all around the world, uh, it's broken down into four books, and it's about the knowledge of God. And so the first book is called The Knowledge of God the Father. The second book of the Institutes is called The Knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. The third volume is called The Knowledge of God and the Holy Spirit. And the fourth book is The Knowledge of God in the Church and Sacraments. Now, I'm summarizing them with a shorter title, but if you look carefully, you can see it's the Trinity, 
and then the church's life, and it all has to do with knowing a real, personal, biblical knowledge of who the triune God is and the body of people that he creates in history through his grace. So we might say that Calvin is a theologian of God's work of salvation that creates the church. Some would even make it more narrow. I think J.I. Packer, the famous uh, Anglican theologian who wrote the book Knowing God that has been so popular among many, said we might describe Calvin as a theologian of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Because one of the things he especially did was he understood that the church had wrestled deeply with, well, who's God, and what is the Trinity, and what are the natures of Christ? But he felt like the application of redemption, how it was made available to believers and how they're redeemed had not been explored as fully. So it's really the application of salvation through the Holy Spirit. So it is a God-centered, a theocentric theology reflecting the Trinity, but especially looking not just at how God the Father has accomplished salvation in God the Son, but how God the Father and the Son have applied this salvation to God's people through God the Holy Spirit, creating the church and its wonderful ministry. So I would say the very structure of his book gives us what he was trying to get at. And the key word, and he starts it in book one in the first section, he says all the knowledge that we need in this world that is abiding and significant has to do with either knowing God or knowing ourselves. Mm. He said you cannot know yourself unless you know God, and you cannot truly know God unless you know who you are. He said, which comes first is a debate, but the Bible is what gives us a true knowledge of God so that you might really know yourself. So maybe I'm not out of line to say the core of Calvin's theology is really knowing God so that you can really know yourself, and that knowledge is only possible by God's revelation of himself in the Holy Scriptures, which the Reformation calls sola scriptura, the Scriptures alone. Hmm. I get the impression with Calvin when I do read him, that um, there's a certain sweetness of soul that he experienced um, in his walk with the Lord, and uh, there's just a, just a sweetness that comes through. Well, sometimes Calvin is seen as the uh, really hard-nosed theologian because he's willing to teach some of the very deep and difficult doctrines of Scripture. But one of the things that does shine through is that he says the essence of faith is assurance. And so when he came to faith, there was this sense that his pondering and wondering, had he done enough, was God really with him, had been so fully satisfied that he was a child of a father who loved him, and that that personal relationship of growing as a son who loved his father and a father who loved his son was his daily delight, and he found that fulfilled in the Word of God and in the sacraments of the Church, and then in the ministry of that to God's people. So the essence of faith is assurance is a very important principle of how Calvin looked at the world, and that comes out in his own way of dealing with the Scriptures, that he found such absolute confidence that God was caring for him in a personal providence, that God was watching over his life, that God had personally sought to redeem him as his son, and that all of God's grace would sustain him. 
and that God had then called him and was sustaining him in his ministry. It wasn't Calvin's ministry. It was the ministry of the Lord that he cared about, and it was his father that was giving him that grace. So that sweetness, I think, was that assurance that came from his understanding mm. what God does to the real believer in Christ through faith. Yeah. I think it's really important, as you pointed out, that he was so God-centered and giving all glory to God. Um, I was uh, brought up differently um, in my Christian life, and I, I don't take away from those early days, but it was more what you might call Arminian. And then um, some, I don't know, 29 years ago, I started reading and studying, and it took about five years, and come out the other end, and it's it's a little bit different than what I thought. You know, I've learned a few things, and and I start to admire the writings of Calvin and, and Luther and things like that. But in the very early days, I, I seem to recall in my background that um, Calvinism was like a swear word. You just don't want to go there. You want to stay away from that. This is really, really evil stuff. And that was more like a straw man, I found out. And it was a misrepresentation of the truth. Well, you raise a wonderful area of conversation here, and several things come to mind. Uh, first of all, the, the the Roman Catholic tradition, of which our Protestant movement emerges from in the Reformation era, uh, saw Calvinism as a deep heretical view, and Calvinists were regularly put to death. They did not want people to have the Bible in their own language, and the doctrines of salvation through grace by faith alone in Christ alone so that God gets all the glory alone and not the Pope or the church obviously this was something they were very opposed to uh, but the Arminian controversy will come on the scene uh, quite a bit later in the early 1600s and but it has as it has developed through the years begun to develop certain straw man arguments it basically has painted a picture of well, if you really are a Calvinist, you will not believe in evangelism. If you're really a Calvinist, you think that there's no need to do anything because God does everything. He's so sovereign, you can just sit back and let God do everything. Well, these are indeed misrepresentations. I remember one of the fun stories I had from being in seminary in Dallas, Texas many years ago, uh, before I had fully understood the, some of the Calvinistic tenets that I embrace along with you, I remember a missions professor who was quite renowned saying, I just don't understand it, Arminian that I am. Why is it when I study the history of missions, the Calvinists always get there first? It makes no <laughs> sense to me. And I, only years later did I appreciate the fact the reason that the Calvinists are believers in missions is that they know that God has a people who he has purchased for Christ from every kindred, tongue, people, tribe, and nation. And they are going to declare the glories of the Lord. And when we go out and do evangelism, we go out with confidence that everyone whom the Lord has purchased and called and chosen and uh, determined to be his own, they're going to come to faith. And we have the joy of proclaiming the gospel. And it reminds me of a second story. Some of your listeners may know the name of uh, John Gerstner and R.C. Sproul, two, uh, two great theologians. Oh, yes. Uh, Gerstner was teaching a class at R.C. Sproul, in, and he was playing, forgive the word, the devil's advocate, and he said in the class, why in the world should we even bother to share the gospel with anybody? If God is this sovereign, 
He's in charge of everything. He's chosen a people. He will draw them. Why waste our time? And the class was just silent. And according to the way R.C. Sproul tells it, he raised his hand and said, Dr. Gerstner, I'm so sorry. I know this isn't a very good answer, but the only one I can think of is, didn't Jesus tell us to do it? <laughs> and, and, and Gerstner looked at him and said, young man, what other reason do you need for the, if the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the bright and morning star, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the firstborn from the dead, the tr- second person of the Trinity commands you to preach the gospel, what other grounds do you need than this? And, of course, that's the point. Calvinism is just simply saying we want to follow Scripture. And our King Jesus, who has chosen a people has told us the way they will be reached is by preaching and teaching and going and sharing the good news. And so, uh, just a great example. Not everybody uh, will use the evangelism explosion method of Dr. D. James Kennedy. I understand that. But this is one of the evangelism methods that's used all over the world. And it was developed by a man who was clearly and consciously a Calvinist. He launched the most effective gospel personal training method ever devised in terms of global uh, Christianity, and he did it as a Reformed Calvinistic Christian. So the objection, if you are a Calvinist, that you'll not evangelize or do missions is just historically false. In fact, I would say if you use that as an excuse not to share the gospel, then you are simply a disobedient Christian and a bad Calvinist. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Today we're talking about the life and uh, teaching of John Calvin, and on the phone line with us is Dr. Peter Lilback, president of Westminster Theological Seminary. Quickly, Dr. Lilback, um, regarding the seminary that you serve at, how large is the seminary, and what if someone wants to go there? Um, What do you got to do to get in? Okay, well, a little bit about our seminary. We were founded in 1929 by a group of professors who uh, left uh, Princeton Seminary because of the concern of a movement in a liberal uh, direction that would compromise, as they understood it, biblical authority. They founded Westminster Seminary to be a place that would train specialists in the Bible who would proclaim the whole counsel of God for Christ and His global church. So that's been our mission for almost uh, 90 years now. Uh, To get into Westminster Seminary, you have to uh, complete an undergraduate degree. You need to have uh, really strong credentials from your church with a testimony of your desire to uh, serve in ministry or in some way advance the Christian faith. And uh, we have currently about 640 students in our regular programs. We have 200 at distance students in our new online master's program we've just launched for counseling. And uh, we are uh, grateful. I guess we have somewhere about 5,000 living alumni serving in, uh, I don't know, scores of countries around the world. Sometimes we say 60 or more countries. I've lost count now. But uh, we're really grateful for the the work that God has done through this ministry. We are Presbyterian in theological commitment. We are an independent school, not associated with any denomination, and we don't require our students to be Reformed or Presbyterian to come here, but we'll guarantee we'll try to give you the best case we can why we think that this position is the most faithfully biblical one you can. We hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which would be 
the high watermark of the Protestant Reformation in terms of creeds. It is Calvinism at its most highly developed form at the uh, end of the Reformation, about 1640 to 1660, were when our documents were developed. And our name as a seminary comes from those great uh, climactic statements of the Protestant Reformation. So you got to apply to come here. By the way, we had talked earlier, and I would just want to share it. If anybody wants to get a wonderful tour of the Protestant Reformation on location, absolutely free, uh, I would ask them to go online and type in theprotestantrevolt.com, theprotestantrevolt.com, and there you'll find absolutely free a 15-part series uh, that Westminster did. I'm your host. It's toured on location, beautiful filming of all these great European and American Reformation-related sites, and there are a host of scholars who've helped us to create the story. And this will be a great opportunity for any of the listeners of your program uh, that might want to get a hands-on experience. There is a study guide that's available through the Westminster Bookstore, but that series is entirely free. I think each segment's about 15 to 20 minutes each, and I think there are about 15 of them. Mm, that's very helpful, and uh, I hope that listeners will check that out online, theprotestantrevolt.com, this 15-part DVD series, and uh, it's free, filmed on location. You can't beat that. <laughs> Today we're talking with Dr. Peter Lilback, and we have maybe about four minutes left. Um, if someone wants to learn more about the life of John Calvin and some of his writings, uh, you mentioned a, a major work that he did, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and that's still available. It is still available. In fact, it's been translated in many, many languages. And I would say that while it's very serious theology, it's written very clearly, and that you would do yourself well to get a, a copy of that. I would recommend what we call the Battles Translation of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and it's outlined very nicely by uh, book, chapter, and paragraph or subsection. And that if it's if you're new to theology, just make a determination to read one one of those sections a day, and just let it be a devotional guide. And by the time you are done reading that, for however long it takes you you will have had an extraordinary exercise in learning Christian thought and theology grounded in the Scripture, reflecting the Reformation clear, but with timeless truths that will really strengthen your heart and mind to answer some of the great theological questions that are going to be here on earth as long as the Lord keeps mm. human history going and the Church on planet earth. Yes, yes. Anything else that you'd want to mention regarding the life and or the practice of John Calvin, perhaps as he was uh, pastoring or anything like that? Well, just a few simple thoughts come to mind. Number one, Calvin believed strongly that his people not only needed to be under the preaching of the Word of God, which means I would urge everyone to be in a church that is faithfully opening the Bible and teaching it. Secondly, he believed that they should be catechized. Now, this is a lost art, but I would urge anyone to find, for example, the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism or Calvin's Catechism for Children. All of these are online if you look for them. 
and use that as a way of just learning the basic truths that everyone ought to know. I think Calvin would reflect that. And then there, his personal motto is a beautiful one. It was actually symbolized with a hand that was open with a heart in it. And he said in his motto, my heart I give thee promptly and sincerely. And that motto has been very sanctifying in my life. I often, hmm. uh, when I'm struggling with something, I say, okay, Lord, do you have my heart? Am I willing to give it to you right now? Am I willing to give it to you without reservation? What do you want from me? That motto is actually a powerful tool that has enabled me, when I use it well, to say, I can't do that. That's not right. God, I want to please you. I want you mm. to have my heart. So I would give that as a, a wonderful takeaway for the life of John Calvin. And I think it is the secret of his passion. He wanted his affections, his inmost being, to be given to God with a mind and a will and with a life, uh, with all that he had to be given to the glory of God. And so, really, the Protestant motto that really honors Calvin the most might be the one that's called Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. That was the life that Calvin wanted to live, and that would be by knowing God and by letting God have your heart. Uh, that's beautiful. You uh, struck a close note uh, here at the ministry. We make available to our listeners free of charge little booklets of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we've sent a number of them out to listeners and uh, encourage them to use them with their families. Well, today we've been talking with Dr. Peter Lilback, and he's president of Westminster Theological Seminary. And um, what is the web address of your school, Doctor? Uh, you can just go to uh, wts.edu, www.wts.edu, or, or westminstertheologicalseminary.com. I think either one of them will take you right here, and there's all kinds of information about how to apply our distinctives, and there's many free resources, chapel talks, other papers that are here. So just go online and look for Westminster Theological Seminary, Philadelphia. Go Google search, and you'll find us. Well, we're very blessed to have talked with you today and very blessed to live relatively near the seminary. It's not that far away from upstate New York and certainly closer to northern New Jersey. It's, it's some ways away from southern Maryland, where another of our outlets are. But um, it's a wonderful school and would encourage anyone to attend there. Dr. Peter Lilbeck, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dan. It's a great joy to be with you and your listeners. And dear listener, please join us next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer.